Hi, and welcome to Inside the Nudge Unit. This is Alex Gianni from the Behavioural Insights team. This week, we're really excited to talk you through some brand new results from a trial that we ran in Aotearoa, New Zealand. Aotearoa being the Māori name for the country. The results were just published in the New Zealand Medical Journal. However, we know that peer-reviewed journals are only one way of getting information out there, and we wanted you to hear from the voices around the globe that made this trial what it was. The discussion touches on some of the biggest debates in the behavioural science field at the minute. Antimicrobial resistance, inequity and replication. The project itself started in 2019 when we were approached by the Health Quality and Safety Commission New Zealand and the Pharmaceutical Management Agency, also known as Pharmac, with the aim of addressing antimicrobial resistance. AMR being when microbes evolve mechanisms that protect them from antimicrobials, like antibiotics. Unlike much medical jargon, this term is actually pretty descriptive, and is largely caused by the overprescription of antibiotics. AMR is a big issue. In February 2019, it was raised by the World Health Organization as one of the biggest threats to world health, alongside other things like an influenza pandemic. Here is the Commission's CEO, Dr Janice Wilson, talking to me about the role of the HQSC and why it is so important for AMR to be addressed in New Zealand. We basically have two roles uh, in that. One is um, uh, an oversight or, or and shining what we call shining the light on key quality and safety issues, uh, and that uh, involves um, uh, measuring and investigating them and reporting them, uh, even publishing on certain issues. Uh, and the second is working in partnership with uh, with all parts of the sector to improve quality, and we call that our quality improvement arm, and sometimes that's on specific focused areas. Um, this particular area, I guess we would see as a, a quality improvement initiative in terms of uh, um, more appropriate uh, antibiotic prescribing, um, which um, hopefully will will increase quality and safety of, uh, of um, patients and their families. And what are the consequences of overusing antibiotics? Well, antimicrobial resistance, of course, is a major issue worldwide. And the you know use of antibiotics is really contributing to increased resistance in organisms and leading to increased infections. And infection, infections is a major focus of quality and safety work. And we were very um, happy, you know, really very pleased to be able to partner with you, a Behaviour Insights team, um, and other organisations in New Zealand, such as Pharmac and the National Haora Coalition, to see if we could assist in reducing inappropriate use of antibiotics in Aotearoa, New Zealand. Excellent. And I think, I mean, we, we talk about the dangers of antimicrobial resistance, but if someone wasn't, I guess, au fait with, with what that means, what, what would that mean to somebody, you know, if we go 10 years in the future and we haven't done anything to solve this? Oh, well, I think we'll see uh, kinds of uh, infections that are resistant to antibiotics, uh, real bacterial infections um, that uh, we've been so used in the last Oh, 50, 60 years, 70 years maybe, where antibiotics are, are you know, cure, cure them, um, not just minor uh, infections, but real significant uh, uh, bacterial infections. And people will die. People will succumb to their infections 
if we don't try and reduce the resistance that is starting to become more significant because of the number of antibiotics that are prescribed. I mean, organisms have become very clever at uh, mutating. <laughs> we know that. We see that through COVID, of course, uh, how, how clever viruses are at mutating and bacteria, same too, and, um, and uh, build up resistance to um, drugs that target them. Plenty of work had already been done on addressing the use of antibiotics across the globe. Our UK team started a project looking at their use in 2014. This work was led by Michael Hallsworth, who is now the managing director of our American offices. Michael, what led to this project happening? Basically, Alex, we had a brief to look at some of the big public health issues facing the UK, the world, and antimicrobial resistance was at the top of that list because of its potentially devastating impacts on uh, modern medicine. Even more so than, say, uh, uh, a flu pandemic? Well, it's all about what the horizons are for the impact. Um, we currently don't really have many answers to antimicrobial resistance. We depend greatly on antibiotics to prevent disease. Um, so, you know, we're talking about a, a massive death toll just over perhaps a longer period, you know, more of a slow motion car crash. Hmm. So why GPs? Well, it turned out that GPs were the source of around 80% of the prescribing of antibiotics in the UK. And that level of prescribing had been increasing over the preceding 15 years. And what was it that led you to think that social norms were the key factor at play? Well, two main reasons, Alex. One is that we had been exploring the use of social norms in other contexts, and they seemed to show promise. And the second thing is that we had evidence that doctors may not have been aware of how they're prescribing compared to other doctors. And therefore, there was an opportunity to inform them of this fact, make those comparisons, which then plausibly could influence their behavior towards the social norm. So high prescribers reduce their prescribing. Uh, you mentioned that you'd been testing social norms in other contexts. What were those contexts? So for me in particular, um, I'd been doing work around tax compliance and people not paying their taxes. And like antibiotic usage, um, this is what's called a kind of social dilemma. So this is where individually rational behavior can have bad collective outcomes. So it benefits me to um, not pay my taxes. It, there may be some benefit to me to getting antibiotics, even if I don't need them, uh, or at least there's some perceived benefit. But if everyone does that collectively, there is a really catastrophic problem. So there's a similar kind of issue to tax compliance. At least we thought there was enough of a plausible um, similarity to try out social norms in this context as well. I don't think many people would necessarily draw the similarities between uh, tax and, and antibiotics, but I think that's one of the, the benefits of the, the behavioural approach. It's this social dilemma point, Alex, um, around the collective versus individual benefits and costs. So how did you go about constructing those social norms in, in the letters that you were sending out? Is a great question. We had to be careful in some ways. We had to strike a balance between involving enough people in the trial 
So we had a big enough sample so that when we ran uh, a test of the control group against the treatment group, we could detect an effect. So we had enough statistical power. But the more people that you have in there, the um, bigger the minority group is. And what, what I mean by this is, if you have 5% of people in the trial, you might be saying you're in the top 5% of prescribers. Um, and that's potentially more powerful because that's a smaller group. But because it's a smaller group, you've got fewer people in a trial and it's harder to detect an effect. So we had to strike a balance between those two things. And we ended up including the 20% of the highest prescribers. And we divided those in half and conducted the test. And we reasoned, and, and this was a judgment call, I think, that 20% would still have enough of an effect as a social norm to shift behavior, but also would give us the biggest sample. Another thing that required some thought was we didn't just say you're in the top 20% of prescribers because we thought that this could be misinterpreted if the letter was read too quickly. You know, if you said top 20%, it seems like it might be a good thing at, uh, at a glance. And so instead we, uh, and so instead we said, 80% of practices in your local area prescribe fewer antibiotics ahead than yours. So it was much more difficult to misinterpret that. And were social norms the only things that you included on, on those letters? No, it's a really good point. We also included actions people could take to reduce their antibiotic prescribing. So practical things they could do which were in line with clinical guidelines. And this was you know, checked by expert advisors. Um, and the point about this is that we didn't want to just leave um, uh, people with the sense that they, were, they needed, needed to change their behavior. We also wanted to tell them how they could do it. Uh, so what were the results? We did this work in the winter of 2014, 2015. And we did this deliberately because we knew that antibiotic prescribing increases in the winter months as people get um, upper respiratory tract infections. And so we had data by month. The first month the letters were received was October. And immediately in October, we saw a divergence between the control group which got no letter, and the treatment group, which got the letter. It was a fairly dramatic change in some ways, and it was sustained over many months. So the reduction was around 3.5% um, in terms of antibiotic prescribing. Given that we were writing to um, pretty much every practice in um, England, that led to around 75,000 fewer doses of antibiotics over six months. Um, and we calculated that uh, because we actually ended up treating the control group, what I mean by that is after six months, it was clear it was working. So we actually sent the letter to the group that hadn't got it as well. Because, you know, we weren't just conducting academic exercise. We also really cared about shifting those numbers. That meant we, we calculated that uh, we reduced England's prescribing by nearly a percent overall by sending this letter. So I think a percent doesn't sound earth-shattering, um, I think, to many ears. Um, 
could you make a case otherwise? So reducing um, a whole country's prescribing of antibiotics by a percent is, is a pretty big deal. Um, given that the intervention was a single letter, and also a good point of comparison is that I think it was the preceding year, there was a £30 million incentive fund um, established by the NHS to incentivize doctors to reduce their prescribing by a percent. So the system had, um, if you like, chucked £30 million at this issue um, to try and get a, a result that was similar to what we got through sending uh, a letter. And that's really interesting because we weren't, weren't sure it would work. You know, a lot of the received wisdom had been that it, it is really quite difficult to shift um, doctors' prescribing behavior. But what I think the social norm example shows is that doctors can be really sensitive to their peer group um, and take cues from what others are doing if, if they are part of that peer group, maybe to a greater extent uh, than we realized. I'm saying it works for every prescribing behavior. Um, it seems that there, in some instances, some drugs, it may not work. Um, but I think there's enough of a pattern to see this as a really kind of promising tool in kind of overall antimicrobial stewardship approach, which we call it, to try and make sure we're using antibiotics um, sustainably. What's, what's happened since? What's really great is that we've seen that this approach can work in other countries, uh, both for antibiotic prescribing and it appears perhaps for other types of prescribing as well. So one thing to say is that uh, this intervention was repeated in, in England in subsequent years, and studies have found that it has a similar effect, so it's been replicated in the same context. But also um, other countries have tried this approach and found that it has, it has reduced antibiotic prescribing. Um, and in fact, I believe, Alex, uh, New Zealand is, is one of those countries, but also a variety of other Euro European countries, I believe, um, have, have taken this approach as well. And you mentioned there that GPs are more susceptible to social norms than we might have expected. Is that because GPs might be more susceptible to social norms than, than others? Or, yeah. I mean, it's difficult to make these comparisons um, you know, reliably. I think partly what I'm saying is that there was a lot of received wisdom that um, doctors would only respond to incentives. And that was the dominant way of saying, oh, we only get change if, if we pay people. Um, it's the only thing people respond to. And I think this shows that is not the case. There were no real penalties associated with this letter. It was simply informing doctors of, of where they were kind of in the distribution, but it had this effect. So there's more going on than a kind of purely um, economically, racially motivated actor model here. And I think another piece of received wisdom um, that I've heard about GPs is that they don't really like to be told what to do. So um, were there any complaints uh, that you got back from, from, from the letters or from the GPs? Very few, 
actually, which was interesting. And I think one of the reasons was that we we thought about this a lot and we tried to find formulations that were kind of respectful, but also we gave um, people the reasons. We, we explained the data, uh, even in a footnote, and said how we'd arrived at, at this, um, this finding, which I think people kind of appreciated. And also I think it, this letter did come from the chief medical officer for England. So I think there's a bit of what we call the messenger effect there in terms of people respected who the letter was coming from. So Michael mentioned that other countries have tried this approach. Before we get into that, it is worth reflecting on why this is important. Many of you will be familiar with the replication crisis in science. This crisis has shown that a number of results from keystone theories and experiments do not replicate. In some cases, this was due to the use of dodgy statistics or straight-up fraud. But in other cases, this was due to people overstretching theory. They might have taken a theoretical construct, i.e. the idea that showing someone that they are out of whack with their peers will result in a corrective behaviour, and applied it to a setting where that theory just doesn't hold. While the initial study that Michael ran showed that social norms worked in the UK, it is not clear whether or not this would work elsewhere. We as a team are often asked whether or not nudges uh, will replicate. Sometimes they do, and sometimes they don't. In the specific case of using social norms to reduce antibiotic prescriptions, the Behavioural Economics Team of the Australian Government, or BETA, and the Behavioural Economics and Research Team at the Australian Department of Health saw an opportunity to test whether or not a similar approach would work in Australia. However, they didn't just lift the messages wholesale. They added some novel things to the trial. As well as trialling the social norms message, the BERT BETA team tested different parts of it and broke them down into constituent theoretical constructs. Some GPs received the standard social norms, while others were sent a graph which highlighted just how far their prescribing habits differed from their peers. They also tested a message that did not include a social norm, but just included generic education, as well as having a control group who did not receive any message at all. Trialling four letters, as well as a control group who received nothing, allowed BERT and BETA to establish what the mechanism of action was. The trial found that the social norms message was effective in Australia. They also found that the graph led to an even bigger effect, although not a significant one, above the written social norms. As with the UK trial, they also found that there was a sustained effect. When they went back to the data 12 months later, they saw that the GPs who had received the letter were still prescribing fewer antibiotics than the control group. With the case for using social norms to address the overprescription of antibiotics now becoming more established, it is time to turn our attention back to Aotearoa, New Zealand. Dr. Rawari Jansen, a GP and clinical director at the National Hoora Coalition, describes the local context. Yeah, two things here. One is the kind of um, general antimicrobial stewardship um, context that all health services need to address, that we're not using antibiotics um, unnecessarily, that we're not using antibiotics in ways which is going to contribute to um, antimicrobial resistance. Um, so we need to be clear that that represents a um, 
complex, challenging risk to communities if um, antibiotics are overused. And specifically in the Aotearoa context, we need to think about underuse of um, antibiotics. And I'm specifically interested in that because uh, we've got a lot of projects going on in our space with respect to reducing acute rheumatic fever. And so we know that there's a lot of um, under-prescribing, uh, inappropriate prescribing of uh, antibiotics to reduce the risk of uh, acute rheumatic fever. And so in all of this, we want to address over-prescribing and get that sorted out. And we want to address under-prescribing, um, especially for Māori patients, because we've got a real problem with acute rheumatic fever in this country. We have a significant problem in terms of Māori attending hospitals because infections have been under-treated or not treated. Uh, so there's a there's a much better place somewhere in the middle of all that where we do um, antibiotic prescribing appropriately. That's really interesting. And I'm, I might uh, push you slightly, if you permit me, to say, I guess, are there any, do you have any thoughts or hypotheses as to, to why, uh, sort of, I guess, what what is leading clinicians to, to not um, prescribe um, appropriately? Well, if, if we being kind and um, gentle in that we might talk about unconscious bias. So those are, um, you know, sort of um, unconscious settings where we make uh, some guesses about whether or not people uh, want to be treated or can afford to be treated, or um, we might make some unconscious decisions about how much time and effort it's going to take to engage a patient to get um you know, adherence to a treatment. Um, but, you know, I wouldn't mind pushing through and trying to break some of those barriers so that we start to look at uh, the differences in our prescribing behaviours and how that impacts on families, on whānau, on communities. And if we do that critically, um, we might be able to undo some of those unconscious biases that we have you mentioned that would be the case if we were kind, if we're being unkind. Oh, you know, if I, if I was being harsher, and, and I often am, I'm, I'm known as a rougher grade of sandpaper. Um, we, we've got a racist health system. And if we want to change that, then we need to robustly look at what we're doing too much of or too little of and get our heads straight around doing a better job of it. Um, you know, in in Aotearoa, we've got a um, you know academic paper that was known as the million missing scripts, and you think about the medicines that are being under-prescribed to vulnerable communities who are entitled to have those prescriptions, and um, that's been going on for decades, and we've tolerated it. And so I think we should start to be intolerant of that kind of under-prescribing. We should be intolerant of unconscious bias and look at our system and say um, that's a way that racism works in our system and what can we do to address it we're responsible for the way that our system works we are complicit in that and we might be brave about that and say let's undo some of that let's address racism in the health system and and that is and, you know part of that is in how we prescribe and how much we prescribe and who we prescribe to and part of it will be in 
what um, investigations we undertake and part of it will be in how we engage with um, particular whānau individuals, communities. Uh, so we've got a lot of work to do. I'm, I'm, I'm up for it. Shall we, shall we get busy doing it? With these things in mind, we started to pull together our intervention. Here's Nathan Chappell from our Wellington office describing the process of developing the letters. So we started with a prototype letter that our, our team drew up, really building on the work from overseas, especially the UK and Australian trials. And then we, we put together this health sector working group with a number of really awesome individuals from across the health sector in New Zealand. So we had people from different government agencies, we had um, people with Māori and Pacific backgrounds, we had practicing GPs and pharmacists who really gave us the, uh, basically the knowledge of what would work in the letter and what, and what wouldn't, and how to make sure that the content of the letter was really landing well and would actually prompt and bring about behavior change. And uh, we, we then used the insights from this working group to kind of do a final version of the letter um, especially focusing on the ethnicity component. So we really wanted to make sure that we were not only encouraging doctors to reduce their prescribing, but to make sure we're not causing and increasing inequities for Māori and Pacific people. And then the final step really was getting access to the, to the data. So we got our government anonymized data, over 60 million rows, it was a lot, and it showed effectively every prescription in New Zealand over the previous year. And, th and then we did the work of narrowing this down to around 1,200 rows, with run one row for each high prescribing GP. And then we fed this data into our letters to personalize them for each doctor. One of the, one of the big discussions was how to think about presenting ethnicity-specific prescribing rates. And what we decided on, really with this amazing advice from the working group, was to, to present different specific ethnicity graphs uh, for Māori patients, for Pacific patients, and for other patients. And this was really to prompt doctors and to allow them to see kind of a nuanced picture in detail of how they're prescribing to different groups. Some of the other discussions were around getting the tone right, so just making sure that it was direct and would prompt behavior change but wasn't too confrontational and wouldn't put doctors backs up and really making sure that we're working with doctors and um, being understanding and in effect also kind of presenting the information the way that doctors know that um, they can understand the data well themselves and we're presenting this as a way for them to make sense of their own data and to prompt them to think through the way that they are prescribing and potential changes they could make if, it, if it's right. Janice Wilson and Rawari Jansen describe some of the discussions that we had about getting the tone right. Oh, look, I think um, one's always a little concerned that, uh, that GPs may feel criticised, that, that somehow they thought that maybe the commission was, uh, and me in particular, was telling them how to prescribe, how to do their job. Um, uh, I, I mean, I, I wasn't very worried about that because we do have quite a good relationship um, with the sector and with um, most of the GP leaders uh, in the country. So I think that uh, we knew that they would be supporting us. Uh, but it's always a risk. You know, you get you know, you know get a letter from some, you know, government agency that say, that kind of advises you um, uh, uh, or, or gives you information about your prescribing. Um, you know, you, you're always a little suspicious, I suspect, as a practitioner. 
practitioner about that. So, of course, we, we were worried about, uh, about how they might perceive such a letter. You know, I think, in a sense, we've kind of trained patients towards expecting antibiotics. And so we need to help um, the clinicians have a different conversation. We want them to be informed by the evidence. We want them to be uh, confident in that evidence. And then we want them to be confident in the conversation with patients so that they can undertake a different um, treatment approach. And all of that takes time, but it also requires some provocation and some reflection by clinicians. So I think the um, space that we wanted to get into is between the the provocation and reflection and to nudge um, a change in behaviour. Another concern was that we were sending pretty sensitive information to doctors. Nathan explains how we overcame that. So on the outside of the envelope, we put uh, confidential in um, uh, big red letters, really, just to just to make sure that it was only going to the right doctors and also to kind of draw attention. And then beyond that, for the busyness, we, we just tried to make sure we were getting exactly to the right information. So the letter started with a call to action, effectively saying, we need your help to address this really big issue. And then it got straight to the social norms by letting the doctor know how they prescribe compared to their peers. And then it went through some steps for change. So the first page was really focused on the crucial detail. And then on the second page, we went into still very interesting, but a little bit more of the nuanced detail. And what was that nuanced detail on? So on the back page, the nuanced detail was um, was really two key things. The first was uh, the doctors prescribing to different ethnicity groups. So we presented these graphs showing the doctor's place um, compared to their peers for Maori, Pacific and um, all other patients. And then we showed even more detail in in the table below that, just showing the doctors prescribing for specific antibiotics for all the different antibiotics that made up our overall kind of aggregate measure. And the reason for that is that some doctors uh, will be over-prescribing for certain antibiotics, certain specific ones. So this is just a way to, again, present information. The doctors will know how to best interpret it themselves. And we're just trying to present the information so that they can make sense of it. So that was the process of developing the letters. But we also wanted to see whether or not they worked. Nathan Chappell describes why we decided to run this as a randomised controlled trial. So one thing we tried to make sure we were doing in this work was not just taking other work for granted that we had seen overseas. So we wanted to test what we knew had been effective, but also think about it in a new context and make sure we're doing good practices in terms of replication crisis, like pre-registering and making really clear exactly what processes we're going to follow. So it was exciting to build on the work from overseas, but also think about the New Zealand context. And I think that has helped us kind of build this body of evidence in terms of what works with behavioural science, social norms, interventions, and what doesn't. So what were the results? So overall, the trial was a really good success. The letters we sent reduced prescribing by 9.2% among the over-prescribing doctors. And in raw total numbers, this would translate to around 8,000 fewer antibiotics prescribed over the total four-month period. And when it comes to specific ethnicities and subgroups, the, the results were exciting and promising too. So if we look at the results for Māori and Pacific patients overall, it led to a reduction in prescribing to Māori and Pacific patients, as we would expect and as we, um, as we hoped. 
the small subgroup we were worried about are patients who we think might need more antibiotics. So when we looked at the at the small subgroup of doctors who were overprescribing overall to most patients, but who we knew were underprescribing to Maori or Pacific patients, what we actually found was it looked like no change or perhaps even a small increase in prescribing to these patients. Um, and this makes sense as well because the, the back page of the letter would have shown these doctors in kind of visually striking graphs exactly how they're prescribing compared and how they were underprescribing compared to their peers to Maori or Pacific patients. We, we hit the sweet spot and that's really important. That, that shows that we can do that safely and we've got clinicians to adjust part of their prescribing behaviour in a way that keeps us all safe and retain, um, you know, w without any detrimental effect to the other part of the prescribing that I'm hoping we can keep going with and do more appropriate um, antibiotic prescriptions where it is clinically indicated. So that, yeah, it was a sweet spot. So while these numbers are important and impressive, it is vital to capture the experience of what it feels like to receive one of these letters. Here Nathan describes the feedback that the letters received. We really got good feedback on the letters. So we had a small handful of doctors uh, who emailed and um, in a phone call as well. And they were a mixture. Some doctors were letting us know how they were going to change and that they really appreciated the information we gave them. One or two doctors were saying, they appreciated the initiative. They thought their situation was a bit different because of the particular patients. Um, and we effectively replied saying that we appreciate that. And we know you can make sense of your own data. Um, one particular phone call with the doctor, that the doctor was actually uh, asking for more specific advice um, uh, from me in terms of changes they could make. And I had to be a little bit cautious because my background in the behavioral insights team is as a behavioral science researcher, not as a, as a medical um, practitioner. So we had a good conversation about potential um, next steps and, um, and connecting with other, other colleagues and, uh, and other policy folk. As you can see, the trial in New Zealand replicated some of the core components of the original UK trial and the follow-up in Australia. It replicated the initial results, However, it also pushed our understanding of using social norms further and we were able to hone in on the impact of the intervention on overall health inequities. I asked Dr Janice Wilson about any other issues that social norms could be used to address. So the, the other area that I think is worth um, researching and considering is the uh, prescribing of anti um, um, psychotropic medication, uh, particularly for anxiety uh, or symptoms of anxiety and depression. It's complex in Aotearoa, New Zealand, because um, as yet we do not have um, adequate um, alternative treatments, uh, alternative psychological treatments for people who um, are suffering from anxiety or depression. But it, there's a rapid increase um, and resourcing uh, in those areas, and there will be a time when they are more adequate. Um, I do think that this is a whole area that that potentially could be explored and addressed uh, because we have such high rates um, of prescribing, particularly of um, uh, some kinds of antidepressants. The project also left a number of other questions open. While our trial indicated that the same intervention could be used to address underprescribing, it did not conclusively show this. Dr. Rauri Jansen highlighted where we might use social norms to address underprescribing rates and also where we can address health inequities. So, what are other areas we were uh, 
generally under-prescribing that perhaps we could nudge people to consider and improve the quality of our prescribing behaviour. Um, I think that's going to be true in cardiovascular disease risk management, uh, under-prescribing in terms of statins or um, ACE inhibitors, um, and, and that kind of change in prescribing behaviour actually um, could deliver really substantial um, gains for um, health outcomes for families. And I'm especially interested in how that health gain uh, could address some of the health inequities that we see. Because under-prescribing some of those medicines is not evenly distributed across a population. It's unevenly distributed. And we, and we could get um, clinicians to, you know, reflect on that and consider, you know, critically consider um, improvements to the way that we prescribe. And that, that would be a good um, good piece of work for us to do. It's also important to remember the notion of theoretical overstretch. Not every problem may be a social norms problem. Here are Michael Hallsworth's thoughts on other areas where we maybe shouldn't use social norms. I think that one of the things to watch out for is where there is a free rider problem and the negative consequence is not very obvious to somebody. So let me explain what I mean by that. Uh, what the free rider problem is if um, you are told that lots of other people are doing something and you think, well, that means I don't need to then. I think a really good example here is blood donation. So if you see something saying 95% of people give blood every week, then you're like, well, I don't need to because then there's enough blood. And you, you, know, you might think, um, oh, um, if I don't do that, then there's more of a chance that if I'm injured and I need a blood transfusion, I don't get one. But that's quite a, like a non-salient, a non-obvious personal implication. Most of the time, people won't think there's a personal implication to this. If you'd like to know more, the results from this project are about to be published in the New Zealand Medical Journal. There'll be a link to this in the description. We've also provided links to the other papers referenced in this episode. Thank you very much for listening. Thanks to the large team of people who were involved in the project, including Catherine Gerrard, Richard Hamblin, Carl Schuka from the Commission, Janet McKay from Pharmac, everyone on our working group, Dr. Ravi Jensen, and thank you to Evan at Pixelized Studios for our editing. Take care of yourselves and those you hold dear. Matewa. Well.